0: You know, one of the things that happens every Sunday morning is we come into uh, the building here and everybody says, Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How's it going? How you doing? How you doing? And if you ever are are greeted by me and you ask how I'm doing, I'll say something like, uh, You know, everybody should get to be me for at least one day, maybe between 1030 and 1130 on a Sunday morning. And, you know, I just kind of meant as a joke, and everybody is, you know, I, no, I don't want to stand up in front of everybody. But, you know, there really is a, a blessing, and I was just thinking about it as, as, as Curtis was leading us and Ben was leading us just now. There is a blessing that it, it, I could never describe it, it is only caught, it can't be taught when you stand in front of, you know, 800 people or whatever the number is this morning, and to hear people praise God together. It comes at you, uh, those voices of praise come at you in a way that, um, that just changes the way your day is going. And not that my day was going badly, but now it's even greater. And I hope yours is too. Thank you, Curtis and Ben, for lead us, leading us and singing this morning. Amen? Amen. Uh, three names, Jay Kessler, Tim Keller, and Kenneth Bailey. Uh, These three gentlemen uh, have influenced the way that I think about Luke chapter 15 and and the the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really one parable uh, with three parts, lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. Uh, Jay Kessler opened my eyes up to this probably more than 30 years ago and helped me to see this passage in a way that I'd never seen it before. Uh, uh, Keller and Bailey have written really good books on, um, on this particular parable and uh, some of the background to it and the theological meaning. And I'm, I'm so indebted to them. And this morning we are going to uh, close out this series and I want to begin with a question. And the question is this. How many of you happen to know someone who never admits they're lost. They always know where they're going. They always know that they're they're going to find their way to the destination one way or another. But they never admit that they're lost. Do you know somebody like that? And the answer is yes. And the reason it's yes is because I am one who stands before you. As one who is always lost, but will never admit it. Now, you know, my wife and I, Ellen, uh, one of our favorite vacations is any kind of a vacation that involves us getting in a car and driving for a couple of days. Now, that may not sound great to you, but boy, we just really relish it. And one of the things that I've learned uh, growing in wisdom over the last 40 years of marriage to Ellen is that when I drive, she needs to be the navigator. When I drive, she is the navigator. So a couple of years ago, we are up in northwest Montana. We're driving one morning, beautiful morning in October, from uh, Whitefish, Montana, over to the east, to Glacier National Park. I kid you not, we get, I've, ne- you know, I've never been there. I, I, I haven't looked at a map, and she asked me, do you know how to get there? And I say, yes, never been there But I always know where I am, right? And so we get in the vehicle, and we're kind of going in the right direction. I know it's east. There's some signs, right? But somewhere along the way, I take a left turn. And we're going along, and it's just beautiful scenery, and we're enjoying it. We're listening to good music, all that good kind of stuff. And next thing we know, we're leaving good pavement for bad pavement. And the bad pavement leads to a dirt road, and the dirt road to a really bad dirt road. And, And Ellen goes, wow. This is a national park. Is this the right way? And I said, sure it is. Sure it is. You saw the signs? And then we started seeing signs. We were on a logging road. A logging road. There were signs that said, make way for logging trucks. And sure enough, here they're coming. I I kid you not. We drive a little bit further and we start seeing signs that say, Port of Entry to Canada coming up. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if I go much further, it's a like, how you doing, Canada? What's up, eh? You know, and, and so we I turn around and we start going, you know, back the 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 way we're supposed to be going, and finally we make it into the park, right? And so the the, the point of this, I'm telling you, I mean the focus you would think is that, you know, I was lost. I was lost. But it really wasn't the, 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 you know, what happened that day was, yeah, we got lost. And we turned around. We went back the way we were supposed to go. But the thing that happened is we ended up being in the most beautiful place we had ever seen. And there is a maxim. There is a moral to the story. And it's up here on the screen. When you realize you're lost, turn around. Let's say that together. When you realize you're lost, turn around. Which now brings us to Luke chapter 15. And the one parable that Jesus tells, it has three parts, again, lost sheep, lost lost coin, lost sons. And remember that Jesus is telling this parable in response to some muttering that he hears. He is sitting at a table with tax collectors and people that were considered by by the highly religious folk of his day to be quote-unquote Sinners, And maybe they were, but at least in their eyes, he's sitting with people that are sinful. And he's not only sitting with them and sharing his life with them, but he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And as you know, to sit down and eat with somebody in the first century meant that you know, you're not just sharing a sandwich, you're sharing your space with these folk. That you're sharing your life with these and the way that they see it is Jesus is sharing his life, sharing his space. He's, he's, he's sharing with undesirables and unacceptables. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are wondering in their mind, how is this guy that we think is the Messiah? This guy, by all reports, by, by everything that we've observed in his life, is a righteous man, how is it that this Jesus is hanging out with the immoral, the unclean, and the unlovable? And so what do they do? They begin muttering about it. And Jesus hears it, and what he hears them muttering is, the us should never mix with the them. The us should never mix with the them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now this is why they kind of get in trouble here. The Pharisees and, and, and the teachers of the law think that there's only one category. One category to, in which to be lost. And category one lostness is this. It's lostness through unrighteousness. It's being lost because you're not doing the right thing. You're not making the right decisions. You're not living the right kind of life. Now that is the most obvious one, right? Right? And Jesus has, is, is telling the story in such a way that he begins with the category one, lostness through unrighteousness. There's a younger son, and he treats the father, a great insult, treats the father as if he is dead in order to get the father's stuff. He's got his eyes on the stuff, not the father. And he would rather have the stuff than have the father. And he lives... As if there's no father in his life. He is trying to put as much distance between them as he can. And for whatever reason, the father says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And he he liquidates the stuff, gives it to the son. The son is out the door with all his pride, with all of his independence, with cash in his pockets. And he's well on his way to making his life a dumpster fire. But you know how the story goes. In verse 17, he came to his senses. There comes comes a point in this young man's life when he realizes that he's dying. He's starving. He is living a life that he never imagined would ever get that bottomed out. He is at the pit of the bottomless pit and he finds... That he's starving to death. And you know the story. He comes to his senses. And when you realize you're lost, what do you do? You turn around and go where? You go home. Now in telling this parable, obviously Jesus is not going to deny that category of lostness. That it's lostness through unrighteousness. That you can be lost because you're not doing what's right. You're not thinking right. You're not doing right. You're not living right. You're not believing right. You're just not right. There is that kind of lostness. And many of us, like myself, can truly identify with category one. But then Jesus adds another category of lostness, and that's lostness through self-righteousness. Category one, it's lostness through unrighteousness. Category two, it's lostness through self-righteousness. And what Jesus does with the rest of this parable is to talk about this older son kind of lostness. And we see three things, the danger of it, the signs of it, and the remedy for it. Let's start with the danger of self-righteousness. You know, as Jesus is going through His ministry... He is very explicit. He is very clear-cut when it comes to self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. You'll remember that one of the first things that Jesus does after he's baptized and sent into the desert for 40 days and he comes out of it is to begin collecting disciples. He's calling people to follow him, to follow his kind of a life, to learn how to live as a human being they were always intended to be. Follow me, follow me. And they, people are dropping nets, and they're, they're dropping everything to follow Him. And Jesus is up in the northern part of Israel. He's living in Capernaum. And one day on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds are starting to hear about Him. They come to Him, and when He sees the crowd, He sits down. They remain standing because that's the way. We, we do it the opposite today. I should be the one sitting. Everybody else should be standing. But that's not the way they did in the, you know Today. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, right after he talks about the Beatitudes, says this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the Pharisees, a self-righteousness, is not going to get them into heaven. In the very last week of his life, Right before he is crucified in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says to these very Pharisees, On the outside you appear, as, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus, during the last week of his life, is also going to tell another parable involving two sons working in the backyard vineyard to the Pharisees and the chief priests. And in this particular um, parable about the two sons, the father says, hey, it's, you know, it's, it's time to work in the vineyard out in the backyard. I want you boys to go out there and work in it. And one son does not seem to accept the father, seems to reject the father, and says, I'm not going to do that. But then later on, he decides to go and do it. And then the second says, oh yeah, Dad, I'll do whatever you want to do. And then he doesn't go. And Jesus asks, which one did the father's bidding? Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And again, he's talking to the the self-righteous. He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And Jesus is in, in Luke's gospel. He tells a parable in Luke chapter 18 about a tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisees and the tax collector, tax collector and the Pharisee, and to some who were confident of their own righteousness, their self righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And in the end of the parable, he says, it is the tax collector that went away justified. The, the reason self-righteousness is such a problem is that it does not recognize the, the grace that gets us into the kingdom of God. Self-righteousness says, I'm good enough to earn what God says, I need grace to receive. And that's a problem. Self-righteousness says, I'm good enough, I've, I, I can earn God's grace. But God says the grace that, that I need, it, it really is a gift. I mean, it, that's what the word grace means. And what I need through that grace is something only to be received. Now, the danger is that it's hard to see this in oneself, this self-righteousness. You know, in, in 40 years of ministry, I mean, this is not the only you know, spiritual problem that's hard to see. I mean, in 40 years of ministry, I've never had somebody come into my office and say, Preacher Mark, I really need your help. I need you to pray for me. We need to study. I need some help because I think I'm materialistic or I'm greedy. In 40 years of ministry, I've never had anybody come into my office and say, I need help with greed. The same is true with this self-righteousness. No one has ever come and said, you know, I, I need help. I have so much pride and so much self-righteousness in me, I'm I'm fearful. The danger is that it's so hard to see it in oneself. Category 1 kind of lostness is pretty easy to see. It's a hangover. It's an addiction. It's an STD. It's rehab. It's recovery programs. Category 2 is more difficult to see. It can look like being in church. It can look like being involved in ministry. It can look like saying prayers and reading the Bible and teaching classes. And therein lies the danger. Self-righteousness is easier to see in others than it is to discern in oneself. Self-righteousness is easier to detect. It's easier to sense. It's easier to get that vibe in others than it is to discern it in oneself. But Jesus is not going to pull any punches here. When he tells this parable, he is not saying that the older son is lost in spite of his goodness. He is not saying that the older son is lost in spite of his goodness, but because of it. If someone believes in their heart that God has to take them into heaven because they go to church, because they give financially, because they pray, because they read their Bible, then they have made Jesus their model and example, but they have not made Him their Savior. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, It is by grace that you have been saved. It's through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the what, church? Gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast. But the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law have not quite got this. And they're really, really upset because, listen, let's, let's give the Pharisees and the teachers of law the benefit of the doubt. I mean, they really care about God. They really care about the kingdom of God. But they're muttering because they see Jesus talking about the kingdom of God that they see is something exclusive to them because of their behavior. And Jesus says in the parable that there are actually some signs of self-righteousness that... You know, there, Jesus reveals really what a self-righteous heart looks like when he gets to the older brother. And he says, you can see it because there's anger rather than rejoicing. There's anger rather than rejoicing. The, the first two parts of this parable, the lost sheep and the lost coin, end with great rejoicing, right? Uh there's 99 sheep that are where they're supposed to be, but there's one that's not. Shepherd goes out and finds and brings home. Everybody celebrates. Everybody rejoices. Same with the coin. There's maybe 10 coins and maybe a bracelet or you know, a collection of coins that was a part of this woman's you know, dowry or treasure. One's missing. She leaves the other nine in a safe place. She goes and finds one. And when she finds it, you know she calls all the ladies in the coffee class together, and they, they had this great celebration, right? In fact, Jesus says, when what is lost is found... Angels in heaven are rejoicing over it. But when the younger son comes home in this parable, verse 28, the older brother became what? The older brother became angry. And he refuses to go in. So, as a great insult to the father, not going in, the father goes out to him and pleaded with him. You know, if someone believes in their heart that their goodness, their high moral standard, you know, their untarnished reputation obligates God to give them a certain kind of life, then that person's going to get angry when things do not go their way. Self righteous thinking gives that person the right to say to God, I don't like the way you run the universe, and I have earned the right to say so. I've told you about category one younger son lostness that I experienced in my life. Many, many years ago, I remember being on a plane and I was facing um, a crisis. And I remember sitting on that plane going, and I said this, your preacher said this to God. After all I've done for you, this is what I get. Self-righteous thinking gives you the right to say to God, I don't like the way you run the universe and I've earned the right to say so. It's anger rather than rejoicing. And it's a grind, number two, rather than grace. It's a grind rather than grace. In verse 29, the very next verse, but he answered his father, Look, look, all these years I've been, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You know, the younger brother says, when he comes back, you know, Father, make me like a hired hand. And the father makes him a son. The father makes him a son. The older brother says, I am a son, but he lives like a hired hand. Where's my goat? You know, uh, one of the truly great personal accomplishments in life, uh, from, from kind of an academic standpoint, was to learn to speak Brazilian Portuguese fluently. You know, um, it, it, is su- it was such a struggle. At first, uh, you know, I couldn't say any, you know, when you're learning a new language and those of you who English is your second language, you know, I, we identify with each other. I mean, you know, when you are learning another language and it's not your heartfelt language, it's not your birth language, I mean, when you make mistakes, they're really doozies. And that was me that, you know, the first several months. I mean, it was, it was a real struggle. It was a grind. I mean, we were studying all the time. In fact, uh, I mean, we the the Brazilian folk are some of the most beautiful people in the entire world. They are so warm. They're so sacrificial. They're so generous. They're so much fun. But we didn't speak their language at a conversation. We weren't even at a you know an ABC kind of level with them. And we had a phone, and you know somebody would call the house, and Ellen and I would look at each other and go, uh, "I think I answered the phone last time. You need to answer the phone this time." And she would go, "No, I answered the phone. You forgot." And I would go, "Okay, rock paper scissors." <laughs> and you know that, and and we'd answer the phone, and and it, it, it was just but you know but after months of immersion, I remember sitting in a a little sidewalk coffee place there on the side of one of the main thoroughfares, the capital city, and it was there drinking just a little espresso that I began to realize that I kind of began to understand what was being said on that television. I was beginning to understand what was being said in these conversations around me. And then one night, I dreamed in Portuguese. And then in my ninth month, I preached a sermon in Portuguese. And then I got to a place where I could tell a funny joke and make Brazilians laugh. And then I could talk about Jesus in a conversation. I remember sitting uh, across... the. My desk with a Brazilian looked just like Mike Tyson. For the longest time, I didn't even know what his name was. We just called him Mikey because he looked like Mike Tyson. And he wanted to be baptized. And I'm sitting across the table, and I'm just, I'm just and it's, this is all in Portuguese, and I'm just telling him about the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Spirit does, and this is what God does. And it's a gift, and I'm just, you know, you know how I get. I'm just going, 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 and all of a sudden I look up, and Mike's just got tears coming down his face. And he said, é tão bonito, é tão bonito. It's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. And then I began to be moved in my heart by by, uh, Brazilian singers, musicians. My favorite is this young woman by the name of Marisa Monchi. To this day, I listen to her music. It's all in Portuguese, and it's so beautiful to me. And there are times when I'm listening to it and the tears begin to well up. It's so beautiful, and I'm reminded of that life. And you know what? Here's the thing. At some point, Portuguese stopped being a grind, and it became a grace. Do you get that? Portuguese stopped being a grind, and it became a grace. Now, I've lost a ton of fluency since then, but it is still such... A gift. We just spent two months considering the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father who art in heaven. The older brother doesn't pray the first part of the prayer. The older older brother sees prayer as useful. It's high on petition, but it's low on adoration. It's high on where is my goat? but it's low and hallowed be your name. God, where's my goat? And then the final is superiority rather than humility. You know, this is why the older brother is not going to go to the celebration. The bottom line, this is why the Pharisees are not going to eat with the tax collectors and the known sinners. And he says in verse 30, but when this son of yours, not my brother, but when this son of yours... Who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. Guess what? You kill the fatted calf for him. Now, at first blush, it sounds like he's chastising his father for rewarding bad behavior. But the real reason has already come out, right? I've been slaving for you all these years, and where is the payoff for me? Where's my goat? The older brother does not like the way the father is dispersing the resources. His eyes are on the father's stuff too. And not the father. And not the father on the father's greatest day when the younger son has come home and they're celebrating. He is not all that different from the younger brother. The young son is referred to by the the older brother not as my brother, but as your son. In other words, I don't want to be a part of a family that has a kid like him. The self-righteous is always going to marginalize certain groups of people that they just see as unclean. There is a remedy for self-righteousness. There is a remedy. The father goes out to the older brother and he says, my son, in the original language, it is such a term of endearment. My little child, my, you know, he doesn't say the little child. He's an older brother working out of the field. But, I mean, it's tender, right? My son, the father said, you're always with me. You're always with me. And everything I have is yours. You know, I, I, I told this to my granddaughter Blair one day. She asked uh, you know, if she could um, have, a, have a Coca-Cola or something, and I said, "Oh, sweetheart, absolutely everything in my house belongs to you." And that, little, that embedded in that six-year-old mind. <laughs> and so Ellen and I earlier this year were out of town, and uh, I've, I've got you know this, this great son-in-law, and uh, he's going to come by the house to check on it. and he brings Blair. And he, and he walks into the house with Blair. Nobody's there. And as they walk into the house, she goes, Hey, Dad, uh, can I get an ice cream out of partner's fridge? I'm, th- that's my granddad's name, partner. Can I get uh, an ice cream out of partner and Mimi's fridge? And he goes, Well, that, that's partner and Mimi's. I, I don't think so. And she said, But he gave me everything. and that thrills me to no end <laughs> that she knows that everything i have belongs to her and yet she's best when she crawls up into my lap everything i have is yours but we had we had to celebrate we had to be glad Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. In other words, when you realize you're lost, turn around. We need to remember that Jesus is telling this particular parable to the very group of individuals that will play a significant part in his brutal crucifixion. And yet... Jesus is trying to save them. And yet, Jesus is trying to save them. The older brother does not see the younger brother through the eyes of the Father, right? And sometimes we get kind of caught up in that as well. You know, sometimes, you know, we begin, if we're at the horizontal level, I mean, I can look at Mark Absher and I can see Charles Manson or I can see the Adolf Hitler types in the world of, in history and I can see 5,000 miles difference between us until I look through the eyes of the Father and there's barely the skin of a tooth difference between us. And we feel we are justified in our goodness and we feel that we are justified in our righteousness. And then we look through the eyes of our Father who art in heaven and we see that we are all, all, all trophies of God's grace. And through the lens of His holy, holy, holy eyes, we begin to see not only ourselves differently, but all the people around us differently and then church we see our true older brother jesus dying on the cross in order for all of us to come to our senses and we realize that all of us are able to go home and to go home to the father and to be embraced through his grace And to spend all of eternity with Him. And we realize that even today, we are becoming a part of something really special. That Jesus is building a community of grace that welcomes everyone. Let's stand and sing.